All right. So the text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 6. In the Pew Bible, it's 258 is the page. As I mentioned last week, our pattern is to each fall make our way through some portion of Old Testament narrative. And this is the third fall that we've been in Samuel. Samuel's really one book. It's, it's divided. But we've been following the chronicles of that. And, uh, and it's almost exclusively our practice, not entirely, uh, as a church to preach God's word in a fashion that we call expositional. So in other words, we have an approach that says, listen, we want to hear the whole counsel of God. And we believe that if we take that in its context and its original meaning, as we work our way through books of the Bible, not just randomly, not arbitrarily, not looking for a particular theme or topic or whatever is something that we're perhaps just interested in. It's really taking a book and saying, what does the original author mean, inspired of God, and how can we apply it to our lives? There are many benefits to that approach, to take an expositional approach, a systematic way of explaining and expositing God's word uh, chapter by chapter as we make our way through books of the Bible. There are many benefits to that. Uh, There's also some drawbacks if you're a preacher. And uh, and one of those is, is that if I stumble across something that I really find challenging or unsettling or things that I know will be uh, hard to digest, uh, not easy to swallow, let's say, then I cannot skip over those things. I don't get to just quietly, conveniently go on to another path because you would know. You would say, well, wait a second, Pastor. What happened back in chapter six that you decided you didn't? I'll go read for myself. Well, that would be good. You do need to read for yourself, and maybe you already have. Maybe you already know what chapter 6 holds for us. This is one of those unsettling uh, you know, passages for us. You'll know exactly why that is in just a moment. But before I read, I want to just briefly prep us. I'll read, and then I'll pray for us. And that's our pattern, too, because we need God's help, his aid uh, to do this. David, King David, he is not the primary subject here. Now, neither is Samuel. It's the God of the covenant, right? But it is. King David in view here, King David has now taken the throne. And he is not only king over Judah. He's, in, he's king over all of the tribes, all 12 of Israel. And uh, last week we said his first order of business was to finish what should have already been done, which, to, which is to press out the, the wicked pagans of the Jebusites in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be uh, the city of David. It would be the city of Zion where uh, David would have uh, worship established. It would be the capital city. It would be an easy place for both the north and the south to come together unified under uh, David and and, in allegiance to, to Yahweh, the faithful God that he is. Next item of business. Uh, that's where we're at now, and that is to take the Ark of the Covenant, or the, sometimes referred to as the Ark of God, or the Ark of, of the Testimony. Uh, the Ark of God is that, uh, that great and sacred uh, box. It's a symbol. It's a representation of the presence and the glory of God that Israel has. And David is going to go and get that, and it's symbolic of the fact that he wants to take and make central to Israel's life, Israel's worship, of God, something that had been lost during the days in the unbelief of the first king, King Saul. So let's stand together. Sorry, you just sat down, I know. Uh, but let's read this portion, chapter 6, together. Hear this. This is the word of God. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits in thrones, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart 
and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Ezzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can I... How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sounds of the horn. The ark of the Lord came into the city of David. When that happened, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all, amongst all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants Female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, uh, we need help. We need your help. Help to understand, help to apply this, your inspired, holy and inerrant word. Would you please make us students so that we might be better worshipers, that we might be better servants, that we might be better witnesses of the love of God and the fear of God operating in our hearts and minds. Help us. All this we pray for Jesus. Amen. It was probably the early 90s. And I was a middle school student at A.C. Reynolds Middle School. And my mom got a note in the mail. 
Pretty terrifying note. She was to report to the principal's office for a parent-teacher conference. It was not her problem. It was my problem. But it was her problem because it was my problem. You get the picture. I'm even more terrified when I think about what happened because now my wife is a middle school teacher. And, uh, and, and, the, and the occasion was that I had developed a pattern of being disrespectful uh, to some of my teachers, evidently. No, it was clearly the case. On one of those occasions, I can distinctly remember, I think it was a Monday morning, there was a group of teachers gathered out in the hallway, and they were talking amongst themselves about the weekend. And I just kind of meandered into the conversation, and I just kind of casually sat there. And they're talking to each other, and they're referring to each other, you know, by their, their, by their names. And so I just said, yeah, well, yeah, Susan, what did you think about that restaurant you and Barbara went to? I will never forget one of those teachers locked eyes on me and she pulled me aside and she says, you should never refer to your teachers with that tone or a lack of their title. And frankly, she was right and I was wrong. And it had been witnessed in other areas of my posture and attitude, and I needed that. My my mom, you know, helped reinforce that all the more, that I needed to recalibrate, to reset, to be kind of shocked into understanding that God's put people in my life that have authority, and they are worthy to be shown respect and honor. Sometimes I raise that because I'm not trying to bring you into the principal's office. Uh, I, I think all of us, though, at times need to be shocked, to be, to be rattled a bit, to be reminded, to have our hearts recalibrated, our minds set upon the things of the Almighty, that we might have rekindled in us an awe for the Almighty. He is our maker. We did not make ourselves. When we read through the text, there probably were some questions that came to mind if you were paying attention. I'm guessing. I'm going to try to touch upon some of the questions that came to my mind to help us. And here they are. I want to touch upon them. Not in great detail, but here they are. Five questions. They're written there in the order of service. What is this box? Why is this man dead? Who is this God? Why is David dancing? And how are we responding? I'm just to forewarn you, I'm not going to cover all these questions in in great uh, detail and, and, uh, and comprehensively, and I don't even know that I'll go in order, but I want to touch upon all of them. What on earth is this box? Right? The ark? Well, it's the most sacred, sacramental, tangible piece of Israel's worship. It was something that God, the Lord, had prescribed for the people of God. He, he constructed, he wanted Moses to construct this as a symbolic representation. It wasn't meant to be an image of what God is, that God is invisible. But the Ark of the Covenant was a precious possession, a sacred chest of consecrated items that testified of the Lord's promise, of the Lord's protection, of the Lord God's provision over his people, Israel. It held things like the tablets, right, that were written by the, the finger of God. Figuratively speaking, God, of course, does not have a finger or a body, but he, he composed the law of God. His voice is there. It's, it's, the, it's the rod of Aaron. It's, it's things like the manna that God provided for the people out of their exodus and their wandering to make it to the promised land. He sustained them with his bread, the manna. There was a, a jar of that. The box, the, the Ark of the Covenant, was made of wood. 
This is how God prescribed it to be made with great precision. It was some four feet by two and a quarter feet by two and a quarter feet. It was acacia wood. It was it was cased with with gold, uh, all plated up with with gold. And there were on top of it. Maybe you've seen an artist representation or there's some museums that have uh, a copy of it. Uh, There were two cherubim angels whose wings are touching and they're facing each other. And inside of that is a space in an area referred to as the mercy seat. Or the, the footstool of God. And in between that is where God would at times meet with his people and communicate with the high priest. This is the ark. The priest would come in on the day of atonement and sprinkle blood over the ark of the covenant to atone for the sins of the people. That, that ark was to be placed in a particular location. It was to, to be put in the sanctus Sanctorum, the, the Holy of Holies, which was the tabernacle of God, the tent, of, uh, the tent which then later became, of course, the temple of God, which is exactly where David uh, eventually wants it to be. It did at times, it was to, to signify the centrality of the worship of God, and it was at times, it, it, was, it, it was a blessing to the people to have it nearby. It, it did represent the presence of God, it did communicate to them some of the blessings of God, but it wasn't to be like a good luck charm at all. In fact, we, we, we see this back in the first part when we studied in 1 Samuel. Some of you might remember in 1 Samuel 4, we see that they're going up against battle against the Philistines. And, and lo and behold, they decide, hey, I've got a good idea. Why don't we go grab the ark out of the tabernacle and we'll carry it out into battle with us. And it will be for us our good luck charm. And we'll, we'll definitely defeat the Philistines that day. Well, they were slaughtered. Their presumption. The ark of God was taken away. That was part of God's plan. God allowed it to be taken away. It was placed by the Philistines in their temple against next to the God of uh, their false God. Uh, their, their God made with human hands, Dagon. And what happens? Dagon in the middle of the night falls over. Next night, they set it back up. Bam, falls over. Eventually, it's decapitated and has his hands cut off. It's, it's, a, it's, a, commenta- it's a commentary that Dagon's... Um, the sovereign God is declaring that the idols of the world are brainless and powerless. It's a mockery. Of course, the Philistines understand. God didn't only judge the idols of the Philistines, but they themselves for their wickedness. And they ended up developing uh, you know, uh, sores and tumors in their body. And they realized that the God of Israel is acting against them with power to trouble them. And instead of repenting and following the God of Israel, uh, just like modern people, they just say, Let's get it out of here. Let's get away from this thing. They sent it off with a cart and said, get it out of here. They send it back. It makes its way to kiriath Jerim, which is the same town mentioned here, Baal Judah. And it makes its way to the house of Abinadab. But, but, but Saul hasn't had it brought back. This is, this is part of God's discipline for the rebellion of his people. And that was part of Saul's unbelief and Saul's heart not being aligned as a king with the, the real king. The king of Israel. So that's a little bit of a window. Why then is this man dead? I mean, come on. Which is really a good question probably to conjoin with the question. Who is this God? If he's dead, what does it say about him? What does it say about God? There's thousands of people. Imagine the scene, right? I I mean, I eat this stuff up. I don't know about you guys. Just Just in my mind's eye, just to place myself on that day. Thousands upon thousands of people in, in celebration and in, in, in worship and, and uh, a big festival making its way as it processes into 
uh, toward Jerusalem. They're bringing the ark back. It's a big party. And then all of that comes to a screeching halt. Because Uzzah had reached out and touched it. And he's dead. Now you could have said, well, they probably just assumed that it was a heart attack. And now we wrote the story. No, no, no. There is no mistaking. Everyone knows exactly why Uzzah has died. It was an impulsive act. But he was trying to protect the ark. I mean, come on, right? What's the big deal? I mean, are, are you bothered by that? I mean, I don't, I don't know his precise motivation, but I can only assume the best, right? I mean, that he didn't want it to fall over. Well, if you're offended by that, if you find that troubling, that he would die, well, you're not alone. Because King David felt the same way. Maybe you picked up on that. What does it say in verse 8? He was angry. It says in verse 9 that David was also afraid. He says, well, what do, I'm not taking this to Jerusalem. This is, this is bad news. What's going on here? God, I'm, I'm utterly confused. Some assumptions need to be cleared away. God needs to be exalted. In this episode, God needs to be exalted and humanity needs to be humble. This man, Uzzah, was a Kohathite. I don't know how to exactly pronounce that, but it's a tribe under the, the people of Levi. And they're described in the book of Numbers as part of the priestly uh, group that was responsible for the most holy things of the worship of God in the tabernacle. Now these are, in other words, Uzzah was part of a tribe that was in no way ignorant of how God designed and desired to be worshipped. Okay, so he has a full understanding of what's involved. And so to answer the question, he's not he's not ignorant of the character of God or the specific direction. So to answer our question in brief, why is Uzzah dead? It's because he disobeyed God And, and David set it up in the failure of his leadership that this should have happened. By the way, we have no reason to think I just want to say as an aside that this was a a condemnation on Uzzah, it was a temporal judgment for him. It doesn't mean that his eternal state was condemnation. It's just that at that moment, he was the recipient of that. It's a temporal judgment that's intended to get their attention. One man's death intended to get tens of thousands, much more than that, even our attention. It's intended to get our attention. Uzzah and everyone traveling knew that God had specified in Numbers 4. This is not arbitrary. It's not like they discovered something new that day. It was known to them that God had said in Numbers 4, verse 15, that under no circumstance, when it would, would travel, you would have it covered because no one could look upon the ark and no one was to, under any circumstance, touch the ark. So this was known. And also, I should have mentioned this too, when we were talking about the, uh, the construction, the makeup of the, of the ark, it also had on it Four rings on the corners. There were rings because that would have made it easy and accessible for poles to be placed through for people to carry it. Because first Corinthians 15 says under no circumstance should the ark be carried on a cart. But it says here, David set up a new cart. Oh, this will be easy. No big deal. We'll take it with the cart. Well, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have to worry about an oxen falling over and touching the ark if you had done it the right way. Folks, I, I want us to see this for what it is. This is a window. It is a case study into the holiness of God, to the justice 
of God. It is not a popular subject. But this is how God has indeed revealed himself to us. And hear this. We need it. We need the holiness of God. God is entirely other. He is perfect. He is set aside. He cannot look upon sin and sinners. And none of us could look upon God. None of us could look upon God and live standing on our own merits or lack thereof. It's our sin. Because of the weight of his glory, if we were to be exposed to the glory of God, just the glory of God, it would completely and utterly undo us. People lived and continue, especially today, to think, I can't believe in a God like that. I I just can't imagine serving a God like that. The problem is we don't get to make God in our own image, according to our own likeness or fairness or make him cozy or make him approachable to our preferences or amenable to our lifestyle. God is God. There is no other. I remember distinctly in college. Have you ever had this, ex- 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 this experience where you, you know and you recall where you were when you learned something or read something new? Or it stood out to you in such a profound way. I remember in college one time I was reading Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said to myself, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell, I live Amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah says. He covers his mouth. It was at that exact same time that I had begun reading a book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. Made a huge impression upon me. Sproul, who's a wonderful Bible teacher, says we we tend to have mixed feelings about the holy There's a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. He goes on to say and write, We may wrestle with the Holy One. Indeed, for the transforming power of God to change our lives, we must wrestle with Him. When when we see evil in the world, when we see injustices, are we indifferent? Are we? No, absolutely not. Nor should we be. It's testimony that we're made in the image of God. We discern and know what is good and what is evil. But I will say, my experience holds up, that we are very slow to see the evil within and very quick and the desperate need of our sick hearts. And we are very quick to see the evil 
outside. We want to be our own king. We want to have our own rule, our own authority. We resist and we reject his authority, the king. Now, we're happy to see, you know, the old saying, you know, know, the karma that falls on other people. You know what it's like. You see that person over there. They're raging. They're weaving in and out of traffic. And bam, they get in an accident. We go, fuck. I just made that visible, didn't you? you that's exactly how you feel. That's how, that's how we respond. Got what's coming to you. But we are blind to see our own guilt and our own need. Uzzah didn't see his problem. Perhaps there is, well, no, there is presumption on the part of Uzzah. He assumed, as Sproul puts it, so well that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that could desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what God had called the earth to do, being dirt, turning to dust when it's dry, turning to mud when it's mixed with water. It obeys the laws of God day in, day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about the earth. It was the hand of a man that God said, I don't want it on this throne. In a word, Uzzah broke the law of God and God killed him. One of the reasons that we are unsettled and we are uneasy about this story is that we have Uzzah's ways in us. We can be careless. We can be presumptuous. We can be ignorant. And I don't mean unknowing, but we can ignore the wisdom and the love of God. We, we, we play with God like it's, you know, maybe today. No, not today. The law of God. You may say, come on, Pastor. I mean, this is a random episode. It's in the Old Testament. We all know that the God of the New Testament is not like this. No, that's not true. There are not two gods. And if you doubt me, you just go to Acts chapter 5. This is one of those chapters of the New Testament that children's coloring books and curriculum don't have. You know why? Because it's the story in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, a married couple that decided it would be wise for them to get a little extra money to hold back. And then they lied about it and they both died. God killed them. He smiked them. That's in the New Testament. Uzzah, because they didn't trust God, they didn't know God, they were condemned. Not necessarily Uzzah, but Uzzah, like I mentioned, experienced temporal judgment. But we all are going to. Why are you going to die? Why are you going to die someday? Not if, not how, but when. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We're all going to die because of sin. It's appointed unto man, Hebrews says, Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. 
Not if, but when and why. In C.S. Lewis, some of you know uh, the story well, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. What happens in the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, of course, they make their way into Narnia, which is under the curse of uh, the White Witch, right? It's, you know, the line. It's the, the, one of the famous lines from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, it's a place where it's always winter and it's never Christmas. The curse is there, but you begin to see it rattled. And there's people who are embedded in Narnia who are faithful to Aslan, the king, the lion in the story. And you hear the murmurings of it and you see the evidence that maybe that's reversing. And Lucy, one of the little girls in the story, comes to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they have this conversation. And she's a bit terrified. She's a bit uneasy. And she says this to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Aslan, is he safe? Mrs. Mr. Beaver says safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. God was and is merciful to warn his people. And in this case, through the life of, of one man. And, and please, he's saying, come back to me. This is important. To, to, to rattle us, to say, repent and come back and, 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 and dwell with me, walk with me in the, in the light of, of this. And the Lord, the Bible says, disciplines those that he loves. He's not punishing. He, he's, he's correcting and, and guiding and, and shaping us to be more like Christ. He also warns us, but he also absorbs that. To contemplate this, the mercy seat of the ark was sprinkled, as I mentioned, with the blood from the high priest, the blood of sacrifice, which reminds us that we have a perfect high priest and we have a lamb who's been sacrificed, Jesus. We don't need an ark anymore. Babylonians probably dismantled it somewhere along the way. We have Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the lamb who lays down his life for us, that we could be covered, that we could stand before God, assured, forgiven, at peace, reconciled, not doubting anything, knowing he's worthy of honor and respect and, 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 and reverence and awe and our obedience, but to say, God, I'm, I'm your child. I've been forgiven. I, nothing but the blood. We sang it earlier. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can atone. Friends, the ark is a testimony not just of the holiness of God, but the grace of God. It's very existence. He's a God who brings love and hope and truth and sets people free. He's a God who brings redemption and reconciliation. And that should cause us to celebrate. Which leads to this next question. Why is David dancing David realizes that there is no need to fear God in the sense of of bringing the ark in. He does fear God in holy reverence and worship, but he does need to be afraid. The ark brings blessing to the house of Obed-Edom. We read that uh, multiple times, beginning in verse 11. And then David corrects his ways because it says in verse 13 that they did not put it back on the cart. They carried it gradually Thoughtfully 
offering sacrifices as they went. There is this anticipation. They're going to bring, of course, carefully to to Jerusalem. In verse 15, there's this anticipation and excitement because the people of God are delighted to be walking in the light. They know that God is worthy. They know that he's been kind. They know that he has been gracious. And then (laughs) there is this sour note. David's first wife, Michal. She sees David and notice the narrator, how he describes it. She looks at David from a window. In other words, she didn't want to associate. She didn't want to celebrate. She didn't want to come amongst with her husband and the people of God and the the servants of God. She's watching David and she watches. What does it say? Well, let's look again at the text. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. She confronts David. She's not in the midst of it. She confronts him when he gets home. I love the fact that, notice there in verse 20, uh, that, he, that she's referred to in verse 16 and in verse 20 and in verse 23, that she is referred to as the daughter of Saul. Not a mistake. The narrator wants us to see very clearly that she is still aligned with the unbelief and the ways of her father and his household, not with King David, who was a man after God's own heart. She's still stuck there. And David, of course, you know, rebukes her. Uh, it comes back to her. She is also very upset. Look at verse 20. David returned to try to bless his house. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How is the king of Israel? How the king has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. you're You're just, David, look at you. Look at yourself out there just worshiping, so undignified, so unfitting for a royal king of Israel. Taking on their garments, dancing with them. How dare you? David says, it was before the Lord that I did that. It wasn't for anyone else. It wasn't, I am one of them. As far as you're concerned, I'm only a prince of Israel. We're all servants of the Most High God. I had to. He is worthy and I am not. And he has, saw, he has seen fit to bring me into his favor. Thanks be to him. David can't help but dance. Verse 21, he makes it very clear it was before the Lord. And he's only a servant of the Most High. Much more could be said there. Much more can be said under all of those questions and topics, and I'm sure you still have some lingering ones, but our duty is to respond, right? When we hear God's voice, when we see this case study in the holiness of God, it's to respond. It's to make application. I think this passage is intended to shock us. Maybe not for the reasons that you assume. Maybe different reasons altogether. The justice of God here, I want to make clear, is not an overreaction. As some would suggest, if God does not hate disobedience and evil and punish it, if he is not holy and good, then Uzzah didn't need to die. But also that means that Jesus, 
The Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world didn't need to die. A miserable death on the cross. There is death when there is sacrifice. There is death for us to be made right. It is, there is blood to be shed. And it is Jesus' blood, the Son of God, who's died a miserable death that he might take our sin and our guilt. How do we respond? Well, hopefully with awe, hopefully with humility and with trust and worship and obedience. We don't have an ark to, to transport as Christians, as followers of Jesus today. But we do have commands that are to be followed. And we cannot and should not twist the law of God. Even though our conscience knows sometimes what we're doing and minimizing and justifying our, our, our ways, ignoring God's law. God said what he meant and he means what he says. A few weeks ago I said the, the, the quote from Proverbs 14. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We need to respond by repenting. All of life is repentance, as Luther said. We are coming and, and we're, we come back and we come back. We turn from sin. We turn towards him daily, bringing it back to him. There are areas where we're being presumptuous, loose, ignorant, dismissive of God's will or God's wisdom. Uzzah did not see his sin clearly. And we are alerted. To this, we need to be. Also, we have with us as a response a right, a privilege, but also a responsibility to worship God, which doesn't mean if there's absolutely, utterly nothing else fun to do on Sunday, the Lord's day, that we'll do, we'll do that. When there is a holy sacrament that we observe, there is a word, there's a simplicity and a beauty to what we do. Called of God. That's one of the reasons that in, in, in full understanding of who we are, that every Lord's Day we come and there's a time of confession. Yielded, humbled, surrendered. There is a right way to worship God. It is not, it, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is deliberate, it is thoughtful, it is not haphazard and random. Yes, there are times in our own private worship and I know and I'm so grateful that God is Warmed my heart sometimes. I'll be, you know, running out in creation and listening to praise music, and my heart leaps for joy. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. We should tremble at the holiness of God, and we should dance at the joy of the Lord. And you can't manufacture that. You can't just drum that up. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We, we have to exercise faith. We have to wait on the Lord. It's not a sermon for me unless I quote from my favorite commentator, Dale Ralph Davis. The fearful sense of God's holiness does not suppress joy, but it stimulates it. Davis goes on to quote uh, Scottish minister W.G. Blakey when he says, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? There are doubtless times to be calm, times to be enthusiastic, 
But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Now, I know what it's like to be at a concert, and I know what it's like to be at a championship game when your team's playing, and I, I know. And I know it's hard for us as Presbyterians, witnessed two weeks ago, to clap during the middle of a song. But when we walk in the light, by faith, trusting his promises, heeding his warnings, there is joy. There is real joy. And it doesn't always have to be outwardly expressed. It doesn't never have to be outwardly expressed. But it is, it is evidence, isn't it? That faith with works. We, we read last night as a family from Genesis Chapter 6, 7, there's two places it says that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. What was the hardest thing that Noah had to do? All those hundreds of years, we're talking about a different ark now, okay? Not talking about the ark of the covenant, we're talking about the ark that was to save Noah and his family and the, the living creatures of earth. Why was the ark there? Because God saw the wickedness of Humanity, and he wanted to be done with it all. What's the hardest thing that Noah had to do in obeying God? It wasn't building and building and building and waiting and waiting and waiting. It was doing all of that when the world says, you're an idiot. When the world mocked him, you, we see in Noah living by faith. The fear of the Lord. I don't care. I'm going to keep pressing on doing what God called me to do this day, this moment, at this time. It doesn't matter what anyone says. I will obey the Lord and I will celebrate before the Lord because he's worthy. Now, the closest thing I've seen to David's dancing and joy has been in the last two weddings that I performed. I mean, I've never seen a guy smile like Josiah at his wedding day. I mean, from start to finish, it was like the, 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 the joy of the Lord just all over this man. I remember it was about a year ago I saw it when I was at, at uh, the wedding for um, Ben Dowd and his, his bride, Bella. And we were dancing. And you say, all oh, those people were acting crazy because they were drunk. No, there was no evidence of that. There was the spirit of God. There was joy For people coming into covenant, there were reminders time and again in song and in praise that God is God, worthy of our celebration and our joy and our awe and our reverence. Can we set this time apart? We come to the Lord's day and come to his word. Can we say to the Lord, please change and shape my affections. I want to have the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord. We need to say what others should have. I'm unworthy, but thank you for the sacrifice. I've been presumptuous, but Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of King Jesus who covers all of my guilt. I stand in awe. I stand secure because I'm clothed in the righteousness of the blood of the Lamb of God. Please pray with me. Father, 
We want to be renewed and refreshed. And that can't happen unless your spirit comes and grants us repentance. So if there's something that we need to let go of this very moment and day, if there's some business that we need to do with our idols, would you tear them down? Would you make sin ugly and your law beautiful? It is beautiful. Would you please forgive us, Lord, for putting you on the judgment seat when we're the ones who stand under judgment? Have mercy, please. I pray you'd help us to see our sin and not despair. You'd help us to recognize our failures and not be discouraged, that we would admit our weaknesses, even even our idolatry, and not be overwhelmed because our eyes are so fixed on Jesus. Lord, I know I need it in my own heart. Please. Father, we thank you for your incredible mercies. It's too much to count. If we were to see all that you've done through the work of your angels and the glory that is veiled, we would just be overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. Thank you for blessing us with new children as a church. I do pray today you'd be with young parents in their duties and challenges. Lord, there's, we look out at the world and we see, not even in the world, but surely in the world, but also in families and in marriages and relationships that need peace. Countries, entire regions that need peace. Ultimately, you know that doesn't happen until you fully, until the kingdom that's not yet, until you return. So we pray that you would come. That you would come back and make all things right and all things new. For we ask right now, this in Jesus' name. Even now as he has taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven,